Hello, here we are again. And today we start a two-parter by our oldest author to date, Charles Dickens. He was born in England in 1812 and, okay, I have to say it. What is up with his hair? You have got to check it out. Okay, despite the hair, Dickens created some of the world's best-known characters. For me, thanks to two wonderful teachers, Joyce and Dina, it is all about a Christmas carol. I found a new love for that story just because of those two. So, let's go a little spooky today. Just a little. So tuck in and enjoy Charles Dickens, The Signalman. Hello, below there. When he heard a voice thus calling to him, he was standing at the door of his box with a flag in his hand furled round its short pole. One would have thought, considering the nature of the ground, that he could not have doubted from what quarter the voice came. But instead of looking up to where I stood on top, of the steep cutting nearly over his head. He turned himself about and looked down the line. There was something remarkable in his manner of doing so, though I could not have said for my life what, but I know it was remarkable enough to attract my notice. Even though his figure was foreshortened and shadowed down in the deep trench, and mine was high above him, so steeped in the glow of an angry sunset that I had shaded my eyes with my hand before I saw him at all. Hello! Below! From looking down the line, he turned himself about again, and raising his eyes, saw my figure high above him. Is there any path by which I can come down and speak to you? He looked at he looked up at me without replying, and I looked down at him without pressing him too soon with a repetition of my idle question. Just then there came a vague vibration in the earth and air quickly changing into a violent pulsation and an oncoming rush that caused me to start back as though it had force to draw me down. When such vapor as rose to my height, this rapid train had passed me and was skimming away over the landscape. Whew, I looked down again and saw him refurling the flag he had shown while the train went by. I repeated my inquiry. After a pause, during which he seemed to regard me with fixed attention, he motioned with his rolled-up flag towards a point on my level some two or three hundred yards distance. I called down to him, All right! and made for that point. There, by looking closely about me, I found a rough, zigzag, descending path 
notched out, which I followed. The cutting was extremely deep and unusually precipitate. It was made through a clammy stone that became oozier and wetter as I went down. For these reasons, I found the way long enough to give me time to recall a singular air of reluctance or uh, compulsion with which he had pointed out that path. When I came down low enough upon the zigzag descent to see him again, I saw that he was standing between the rails on the way by which the train had lately passed in an attitude as if he were waiting for me to appear. He had his left hand at his chin and that left elbow rested on his right hand crossed over his breast. His attitude was one of such expectation and watchfulness that I stopped a moment, wondering at it. I resumed my downward way and stepping out upon the level of the railroad and drawing nearer to him, saw that he was a dark, sallow man with a dark beard and rather heavy eyebrows. His post was in as solitary and dismal a place as ever I saw. On either side, a dripping wet wall of jagged stone, excluding all view but a strip of sky. The perspective one way, only a crooked prolongation of this great dungeon. The shorter perspective in the other direction, terminating in a gloomy red light and the gloomier entrance to a black tunnel in whose massive architecture there was a barbarous, depressing, and forbidding air. So little sunlight ever found its way to this spot that it had an earthy, deadly smell. And so much cold wind rushed through it that it struck chill to me as if I had left the natural world. Before he stirred, I was near enough to him to have touched him. Not even then, removing his eyes from mine, he stepped back one step and lifted his hand. This was a lonesome post to occupy, I said, and it had riveted my attention when I looked down from up yonder. A visitor was a rarity, I should suppose, not an unwelcome rarity, I hoped. In me, he merely saw a man who had been shut up with narrow limits all his life, and who, being at last set free, had a newly awakened interest in these great works. To such purpose I spoke to him, but I am far from sure of the terms I used, for besides that I am not happy in opening any conversation, there was something in the man that had daunted me. He directed a most curious look 
towards the red light near the tunnel's mouth and looked all about as if something were missing from it and then looked at me. The light was part of his charge, was it not? He answered in a low voice. Don't you know it is? The monstrous thought came into my mind as I perused the fixed eyes and the saturnine face, gloomy face, that this was a spirit, not a man. I have speculated since whether there may have been infection in my mind. In my turn, I stepped back, but in making the action, I detected in his eyes some latent fear of me. This put the monstrous thought to flight. You look at me, I said, forcing a smile, as if you had a dread of me. I was doubtful, he returned, whether I had seen you before. Where? He pointed to the red light he had looked at. There, I said, intensely watchful of me, he replied, but without sound, yes. My good fellow, what should I do there? However be that as it may, I never was there. You may swear. I think I may, he rejoined. Yes, I am sure I may. His manner cleared like my own. He replied to my remarks with readiness and in well-chosen words. Had he much to do there? Yes, that was to say, he had enough responsibility to bear, but exactness and watchfulness were what was required of him. And of actual work, manual labor, he had next to none to change that signal, to trim those lights, and to turn this iron handle now and then was all he had to do under that head. Regarding those many long and lonely hours of which I seemed to make so much, he could only say that the routine of his life had shaped itself into that form and he had grown used to it. He had taught himself a language down here, if only to know it by sight, and to have formed his own crude ideas of its pronunciation, if that could be called learning it. He had also worked at fractions and decimals and tried a little algebra, but he was, and had been as a boy, a poor hand at figures. Was it necessary for him when on duty always to remain in that channel of damp air and could he never rise into the sunshine from between those high stone walls? Why, that depended upon times and circumstances. Under some conditions, there would be less upon the line than under others, and the same held good as to certain hours of the day and night. In bright weather, he did choose occasions for getting a little above these lower shadows, but being at all times liable to be called by his electric bell 
and at such times listening for it with redoubled anxiety, the relief was less than I would suppose. He took me into his box where there was a fire, a desk for an official book in which he had to make certain entries, a telegraphic instrument with its dial face and needles, and the little bell of which he had spoken. On my trusting that he would excuse the remark that he had been well educated and, I hoped I might say without offense, perhaps educated above that station, he observed that instances of slight incongruity in such wise would rarely be found wanting among large bodies of men. That he had heard it was so in workhouses, in the police force, even in that last desperate resource, the army. And that he knew it was so, more or less, in any great railway staff. He had been, when young, if I could believe it, sitting in that hut, he scarcely could, a student of natural philosophy and had attended lectures, but he had run wild, misused his opportunities, gone down, and never risen again. He had no complaint to offer about that. He had made his bed and he lay upon it. It was far too late to make another. All that I have here condensed, he said in a quiet manner, with his grave, dark regards divided between me and the fire. He threw in the word, sir, from time to time, and especially when he referred to his youth, as though to request me to understand that he claimed to be nothing but what I found him. He was several times interrupted by the little bell and had to read off messages and send replies. Once he had to stand without the door and display a flag as a train passed and make some verbal communication to the driver. In the discharge of his duties, I observed him to be remarkably exact and vigilant, breaking off his discourse at a syllable and remaining silent until what he had to do was done. In a word, I should have set this man down as one of the safest men to be employed in that capacity. But for the circumstance that while he was speaking to me, he twice broke off with a fallen color, turned his face toward the little bell when it did not ring, opened the door of the hut, which was kept shut to exclude the unhealthy damp, and looked out towards the red light near the mouth of the tunnel. On both of those occasions, he came back to the fire with the inexplicable air upon which I had remarked, without being able to define when we were so far asunder said I when I rose to leave him. You almost make me think that I have met with a contented man. I am afraid I must acknowledge that I said it to lead him on. I believe I 
used to be so, he rejoined, in the low voice in which he had first spoken. But I am troubled, sir. I am troubled. Oh, he would have recalled the words if he could. He had said them, however, and I took them up quickly. With what? What is your trouble? It, it is very difficult to impart, sir. It is very, very difficult to speak of. If ever you make a, another visit, I will try to tell you. But I expressly intend to make you another visit. Say, when shall it be? I go off early in the morning and I shall be on again at 10 tomorrow night, sir. I will come at 11. He thanked me and went out the door with me. I'll show my white light, sir, he said, in his peculiar low voice, till you have found the way up. When you have found it, don't call out. And when you're at the top, don't call out. His manner seemed to make the place strike colder to me. But I said no more than, very well. And when you come down tomorrow night, don't call out. Let me ask you a parting question. What what made you cry, hello, below there, tonight? Oh, heaven knows, said I. I cried something to that effect. No, not to that effect, sir. Those were the very words. I know them well. Admit, those were the very words. I said them, no doubt, because I saw you below. For no other reason? Well, what other reason could I possibly have? You had no feeling that they were conveyed to you in any supernatural way? No. He wished me good night and held up his light. And I walked by the side of the down line of rails with a very disagreeable sensation of a train coming behind me oh, until I found the path. And it was easier to mount than to descend. And I got back to my inn without any adventure. Punctual to my appointment, I placed my foot on the first notch of the zigzag next night as the distant clocks were striking eleven. He was waiting for me at the bottom with his white light on. I have not called out, I said when we came close together. May I speak now? By all means, sir. Good night, then, and here's my hand. Good night, sir, and here's mine. With that, we walked side by side to his box, entered it, closed the door, and sat down by the fire. I have made up my mind, sir, he began, bending forward as soon as we were seated, and speaking in a tone but a little above a whisper, that you shall not have to ask me twice what troubles me. I took you for someone else yesterday evening. 
That troubles me. That mistake? No. That someone else. Who is it? I don't know. Like me? I don't know. I never saw the face. The left arm is across the face and the right arm is waved, violently waved this way. I followed his action with my eyes and it was the action of an arm gesticulating with the utmost passion and vehemence. For God's sake, clear the way. One moonlight night, said the man. I was sitting here when I heard a voice cry, Hello, below there. I started up, looked from that door, and saw this someone else standing by the red light near the tunnel, waving as I just now showed you. The voice seemed hoarse with shouting, and it cried, Look out! Look out! And then again, Hello! Below there! Look out! I caught up my lamp, turned it on red, and ran towards the figure, calling, What's wrong? What has happened? Where? It stood just outside the blackness of the tunnel. I advanced so close upon it that I wondered at its keeping the sleeve across its eyes. I ran right up to it and had my hand stretched out to pull the sleeve away when it was gone. Into the tunnel, said I. No, I ran on into the tunnel, five hundred yards. I stopped and held my lamp above my head and saw the figures of the measured distance and saw the wet stains stealing down the walls and trickling through the arch. I ran out again, faster than I had run in, for I had a mortal abhorrence of the place upon me. And I looked all round the red light with my own red light, and I went up the iron ladder to the gallery atop of it, and I came down again, and I ran back here. I telegraphed both ways. An alarm has been given. Is anything wrong? The answer came back both ways. All well. Resisting the slow touch of a frozen finger tracing out my spine, I showed him how that this figure must be a deception of his sense of sight, and how that figures originating in disease of the delicate nerves that minister to the functions of the eye were known to have often troubled patients, some of whom had been conscious of the nature of their affliction and had even proved it by experiments upon themselves. As to an imaginary cry, said I, do but listen for a moment to the wind in this unnatural valley while we speak so low, and to the wild harp 
it makes on the telegraph wires. That was all very well, he returned, after we had sat listening for a while. And he ought to know something of the wind and the wires, he who so often passed long winter nights there, alone and watching. But he would beg to remark that he had not finished. Oh, I asked his pardon, and he slowly added these words, touching my arm. Within six hours after the appearance, the memorable accident on this line happened. And within ten hours, the dead and wounded were brought along through the tunnel over the spot where the figure had stood. <laughs>